Hi friends, welcome to Unyielding, a podcast for Pathways to Hope Network where our goal is to connect with mothers of children facing the juvenile justice system while giving a voice to the challenges you face and honoring the unyielding love between a mother and her child. Hi ladies, I'm Angie and this is episode three in our first series, Into the Unknown, where we break down the basics of what you can expect while walking beside your child through the juvenile justice system. In episodes one and two, we looked at what to expect in the court system. This week, our focus shifts to you. The whole purpose of this first series has been to front load you with some basic information about what this process looks like so that you can feel more empowered to navigate your family through this journey. For today's episode, I want to give you some basic information on how trauma works. Trauma is a very complicated subject matter, and we won't have near enough time to go in depth on it, but I still think it's worthy of our time to discuss. As parents operating in crisis mode, we're doing our best to just get through the situation, and it's really easy to overlook what is actually going on inside us. Then I'll share with you what happened when I took a poll and asked mothers with children facing incarceration what advice they would give to someone who was just beginning this journey with their child. They had some great advice, and I can't wait to pass it on to you. But before we get started, remember, this podcast represents my own opinions and experiences. Frequently, I check in with other moms and get feedback on their experiences because everyone processes things differently. And I want to make sure that I'm giving you the best information possible. But we are not mental health professionals. We're just moms like you who walk through this journey with our children and are committed to sharing our struggles because we truly believe we're stronger together. The content here should not be taken as an assessment or treatment for any mental or emotional health disorders. It's for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique and therapy can be so helpful, I encourage you to consider the idea of therapy for yourself and your loved ones. So we'll go ahead and get started, but don't forget at the end of the podcast, I always try to give at least one piece of practical advice on a small actionable step you can take today. These tips are designed to slowly help you onto a path towards hope where you feel a little more in control of your life. And with so much content today, this episode will be a little longer than usual. So be sure to listen all the way through. If it's okay with you, I'd like to start off today by sharing a little bit of my experience with you. In an effort to connect with you and help you understand that you're not alone in this, I'd like to share with you some of the feelings that I went through as a mom. I think back on it now and I remember how overwhelmed I was by all the unknowns. I was terrified about how this was going to all play out, how this was going to impact my child, how this was going to impact my other kids, how this was going to impact my marriage. I had this profound feeling of helplessness. I didn't know how to parent in this season. I was battling through all these feelings of should I have done something different or could I have done something different? Is there a way I could have prevented this from happening? Did I miss something? And why do we do that? What are these silly attempts of trying to figure out if we could somehow rewrite the past? It's such a waste of time. I think we could all agree that there's no point in thinking about do-overs, but somehow I guess our brains are just trying to make sense of the senseless. I don't know what it is, but I remember spending a lot of time thinking about it, and to be honest, I still do sometimes. 
and nestled right next to my could-I-have-done-something-different thoughts were thoughts about how I must have failed somewhere along the way. I mean, obviously, if my child, whom I gave birth to, who I've been raising, could have made a mistake big enough for the courts to be involved, well then surely that responsibility must fall on me somehow, right? I think the reason that was such a natural response, and I can't speak for everybody, but for me anyway, is because once I held a perception about families who had kids that were in trouble. Whether they were in trouble at school or trouble with the law, I'm ashamed to say I passed judgment on those parents. That's not easy to say. It's really hard to admit, but if I'm going to be honest, I have to admit that more than once I had thoughts about how maybe if that mom had set some clear boundaries with that child at an early age or spent more time with them, they wouldn't be in this situation. I thought that if they had been paying better attention to who their child's friends were, maybe they wouldn't have been caught up with the wrong crowd. Looking back, there were so many different judgments I passed on to other families and other moms. Never to their face or gossiping behind their back, but those holier-than-thou thoughts were there. And while I knew I was far from perfect, I thought I pretty much had it figured out. I thought I knew all the rules and boundaries that needed to be set, all the things that were going to be important for them. I thought it was enough to love them and care for them and volunteer in their classrooms. I naively believed that there was an invisible layer of protection I wove around them when I read them stories before bed. I thought that teaching them to respect their elders would remove the obstacles they might face in their future when they encountered people with authority over them. Lessons of how to behave in public were meant to ward off bad choices in their future. I thought I had followed all the rules. And call it karma, or the exalted being humbled, but one day there I stood, in the same place those other mamas has once stood, and looking in the mirror, all those judgments I had passed on the other parents, well, they were staring back at me, and I felt so much shame. But not just shame for how I judged others, I also felt shame because I believed that whoever found out about what was going on with my child or in our family would pass those same judgments on me. I was now one of those moms. It's funny how life humbles you and changes your perspectives. You always hear people say, well, who cares about what people think? Or my favorite, someone else's opinion of you is none of your business. But you do care what people think. You care what people think and you care what people think about your child. So the same way I was passing judgment on other kids, I knew people would be passing judgment on me and my child. And what I never stopped to consider when I was the judger was how hard it was for those mamas who believed they knew their child who believed they knew who their child really was inside, who in the core of their being as their mother believed their child was better than this and that this didn't define them, but at the same time had to reconcile that a level of trust between them had been broken and that broken trust left them questioning something that broke their hearts. Is my child now who they say he is? or who I say he is, and talk about despair. For me, as a mom, I began to struggle with my doubt and my ability to parent well, and here's why. I didn't see this coming. I didn't ever imagine this being something I would be up against as a mom or as a family. I never even saw it on the radar, friends. And all of a sudden, it just felt like, well, this is a whole new ball game. I have no idea how to parent through this. I don't know what my reaction should be here. To be honest, I wanted to run. I mean, that was my first initial response. I didn't want to have 
any part of it at all. There was no part of me that was naturally willing to lean in initially and be like, okay, let's figure this out together. We got this. Quite the opposite. I wanted this to go away. I wanted this all to go away. I wanted to wake up and I wanted it to be gone. I didn't see a way through it at all. And that's a normal response. When you start to talk about and look at trauma and the way trauma affects us, it begins to make a little more sense about why you're feeling the things you're feeling and how you're processing through those feelings. And I think as moms, we tend to beat ourselves up over one, was this a failure on our part somehow? And two, are we showing up for our child in a way that's best for them? There's also parts of you that are angry. And I think everyone handles that anger differently. For some parents, anger sounds like, well, you're on your own. You got yourself into this mess and you need to figure it out. And for other parents, anger awakens a fierce sense of protection in them. And their anger sounds like, no, this is being blown way out of proportion. Whatever happened is not a big deal. And they're just trying to make an example out of them. It's absolutely ridiculous. And still for some parents, the overwhelming emotion is just heartbreak and sorrow. They are just so overwhelmed by all of their feelings that they feel like they're just going through the motions and doing the best they can, but they have no idea how to respond and they can't function at all. It's total survival mode and it's almost a sense of denial because it's all just too much. I think that the majority of us kind of switch between those responses in different phases at different times, but I think it's important to understand trauma and how trauma plays into this. Most of us hear the word trauma and we think of it as something someone experiences after a really bad car crash or a house fire that causes them to lose everything. Something someone in the armed forces experiences after serving in combat. We think of a situation that involves serious harm to others, possibly even death. We think of the horrific stories we've heard on the news where the words and images are burned into our mind and a silent prayer grows up, hoping it never happens to us. But listen to this definition. Trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, causes feelings of helplessness, diminishes their sense of self and their ability to feel a full range of emotions and experiences. Does that sound familiar? Would you say your child being arrested or charged with a crime is something deeply distressing? Would you say it's been a disturbing event that has overwhelmed your ability to cope? Have you experienced feelings of hopelessness? Have you felt like everything in your life has taken a backseat to what's going on in your child's life? Well then, friend, we have to call this what it is. Trauma. Until we have a clear picture of exactly what we are dealing with, it's easy to fall into a pattern where we question our responses and become trapped in a cycle of guilt and shame and despair. Once we've identified how having a child arrested or incarcerated is real trauma, we can begin to talk about how and why it's so important to know what happens in our bodies as we move through this experience. A few years after our family's journey through the juvenile justice system, I started becoming really interested in learning more about trauma and how it affects us. 
When we were going through this journey, there were things that happened that when I looked back on them just didn't make sense. Reactions that I had that still confused me and I couldn't understand what had actually happened in that moment or why I responded the way I did. There's one day that stands out for me and it's one I don't think I'm ever going to forget. It was towards the beginning of our journey and it was about the time when charges had been filed, but we weren't certain about what the prosecution for those charges were going to look like. It was when everything was really new and I was really scared. I was trying to decide if as parents we should hire a private attorney or if we should have our case handled by a public defender. Now, at the moment, this decision felt huge to me. But notice my choice of words there. That just happened without me thinking about it. I said our case. Well, because that's what it was. When our child is experiencing anything, by extension, we as mothers and fathers are also experiencing it. Their joy is our joy. Their heartache is our heartache. The two, since birth, are so deeply connected that one child struggling impacts the entire family. Let me explain why the decision on whether or not to hire an attorney felt so huge to me. There are a lot of factors families consider when deciding if they should hire a private attorney or go with a public defender. They consider how they'll pay for the attorney. Do they have the financial means to cover the cost? Attorneys, as we all know, aren't cheap. Will they have to borrow money? Will they have to pull out money from a retirement account? They also consider how invested a public defender will be in their child's case, and if that has the potential to impact the outcome, and how that outcome will affect their child, and by extension, how it'll affect their entire family. They may also consider whether or not it's their responsibility to hire and pay for an attorney. After all, their child got themselves into this situation. Maybe their child should bear the sole responsibility in getting themselves out. In the same moment, they may also counter that thought with, yeah, but that's my child. And will I have regrets after the fact if I don't do everything in my power to help reduce the potential impact this may have on their future? I mean, sometimes it just feels like there's no right answer. If you're married, whether it's with the child's biological parent or step-parent, another hurdle may be when your spouse has their own opinions on what should or shouldn't happen, and their opinion is totally different from yours. As a mom, you're trying to look out for the best interest of your child, look out for the best interest of the family, look out for the best interest of your marriage. There's so many things to consider. And because both parents have a role in giving input and making decisions, it can result a lot of times in this tension that gets built up in the relationship. And so on this particular day, these were the thoughts fighting for space in my mind. I remember my husband coming home from work and feeling like I needed to take a minute to myself and contemplate what the right decision would be. I walked up the stairs into my bedroom and quietly closed the door behind me. It was evening time, and the shades were drawn. In the corner, a rocking chair, the same one I rocked my babies in, sat offering me a place to rest. Without turning on the lights, I walked to the corner. I sank into the soft yellow cushion, and I began to think about what the best choice would be. After a short period of time, I heard my husband's footsteps quietly making their way up the stairs. He opened the door silently and stood in the doorway for a minute before making his way across the bedroom to the corner with me in the rocking chair. He knew that I was struggling with something. He knew 
instinctively that this was one of those moments when the weight of our circumstances had become too heavy, and in an attempt to hold on to what little strength I had left, I had chosen to isolate. He also knew that as my husband, he needed to know that I was okay. He leaned against the wall, and with concern in his voice, he asked me what I was thinking about. I knew that he would have his own thoughts on whether or not we should hire an attorney, and selfishly, I didn't want to consider them. This decision felt hard enough without considering someone else's feelings on the matter. Hesitantly, I told him that I was considering hiring an attorney. This was the first time either of us had even talked about the subject, and I remember seeing a small, fleeting look of disapproval pass over his face. And for the record, it could be that it wasn't a look of disapproval. It could be that I was so intently looking at his face for a sign of his reaction that I interpreted it as disapproval. But whether it was my interpretation or it really was there, it felt like a dam had burst inside me. And while I sat there trying to hold it all in, he asked me a simple question. I don't even remember exactly what the question was, but I think it was something like, Do you really think that's the best route to go? And inside me, guys, this feeling of panic slowly began to rise up. It felt like I was drowning. I remember sitting in the rocking chair feeling this strange sensation, which felt like I didn't have access to any rational thoughts in my head. I remember replying, I don't know. And I remember repeating those words again and again. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And my mind felt like it was stuck on this loop and I couldn't get out of it. My hands were on my head and tears were streaming down my face. And all that I knew was that I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the right thing to do was. I didn't know what the right thing to say was. I didn't know how to parent through this situation. I didn't know what to say to my child. I didn't know how I was going to get up tomorrow and face another day feeling this way. And I didn't know how anything was going to turn out. And I remember feeling like I was drowning inside myself. At that moment, I literally thought to myself, I'm losing my mind. The only thing I knew was that I could not sit there for one minute more. My body needed to get away from that space. And I ran to the bathroom where I got sick. It was an actual physical response where it felt like nothing inside me could stand to be in there for a second longer. Afterwards, I sat on the bathroom floor for a long time because I didn't want to go back downstairs and do the dishes or help my kids with their homework or even face my husband for another conversation. I didn't want to face the world. I didn't want to try and make decisions without knowing what was right, and I didn't want to deal with anything that was happening. My faith has been a really important part of this journey, and I think this was the first moment where I realized how pivotal it was going to be for me to believe in something bigger than myself, really recognizing that I was going to need a higher power to get me through this. I remember sitting there at that moment, and I was thinking, God, I can't feel you. Like, I can't feel you around me at all. Where are you in all of this? And I just felt desperation and lost. And I felt loneliness in the core of my being. I sat there for a long time, just crying and feeling the back of my head against that cold bathroom wall. And after some time, a thought floated through my mind from out of nowhere, it seemed. A scripture, 
a verse that reads, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So I sat there with that verse, and I meditated on it. I said it over and over again until I felt shielded in knowing that there was something out there that was greater than this problem. And even though I didn't know how, I had hope that we were going to get through it. I always wondered, though, what happened in that moment in the rocking chair? What was happening inside my mind that created that intense reaction in me, a reaction that prevented me from being able to process through any emotions or thoughts? Years later, a friend of mine told me about a book she had read called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It's written by Bessel van der Kolk. In the book, he describes what happens to us when we experience trauma and how our body responds to it. He basically says that there's sensory information from the world, things that are going on around us, that arrive through our ears, nose, eyes, and skin. These sensations come in through the thalamus. The thalamus is part of the limbic system in our brain that's responsible for our behavioral and emotional responses. He describes the thalamus as the cook. So if you think about a cook in a kitchen, what do they do? They gather up all the ingredients and they mix it all together into a dish. So all the sensory information that you perceive is going on outside of you. The cook, the thalamus, takes all that information and passes it on to two potential areas of the brain. First, the information goes down to the amygdala, which is the unconscious part of our brain. And then it goes up to the frontal lobe where it reaches our conscious part of our brain. So the amygdala, he says, is on the low road. The information goes there extremely fast. Once it gets through the amygdala, it's passed up the high road that leads to the prefrontal cortex. In the book, the amygdala is described as the smoke detector. Its job is to take the ingredients it receives from the cook and determine if the sensory information it's receiving is something that impacts our survival. To do that, it first gets input from the hippocampus. The hippocampus, he says, is like the best friend who remembers everything. She knows what happened, when it happened, how it affected you, everything. She has an amazing memory. So the ingredients, or the sensory information, comes in, it goes to the smoke detector, and working with the best friend who knows everything, they really quickly compare all of the new ingredients to our past experiences, looking for any potential threats. If the smoke detector decides that there's a threat, then it triggers a release of two really powerful hormones. Think Incredible Hulk. The hormones are cortisol and adrenaline. And these hormones, they increase our heart rate, our blood pressure, our rate of breathing, and they prepare us to either fight or to run away. But here's the thing. If you have experienced trauma in the past, it can actually increase the risk of misinterpreting those ingredients. For instance, let's say you've had some type of trauma in your past where you've experienced feeling helplessness in a situation where things were outside your control. Maybe that was watching somebody you care about die, or you had a loved one who was addicted to drugs or alcohol and you watched them spiral out of control. Maybe when you were young, you experienced your parents going through divorce, and that's something you really struggled with. Well, as we said, when our bodies experience trauma, one of the hormones released is cortisol, right? And guess what? 
If you have a high amount of cortisol that's released over an extended period of time, what that cortisol does is it ingrains whatever is happening into your memory a little deeper so that your brain can more easily remember those things and try and protect itself when those situations come up again. So now when your cook brings in those ingredients and it passes down to the smoke detector and the smoke detector, the amygdala, shares that information with her best friend and says, hey, here's what's going on. Anything we should worry about? Well, that best friend quickly scans her memory and says, wait a minute, there's a pretty serious memory here that I think that we should consider. We felt a lot of these same things at this time. I think we should be concerned. And the amygdala sounds the alarm. Remember, the whole purpose of the smoke detector is to keep us safe, right? Fight or flight. So that's the low road. The high road is when the information makes it past the smoke detector and her best friend up to what the author describes as the watchtower. The watchtower is the prefrontal cortex, and it's what's responsible for reason, logic, or refined interpretation. As long as we don't have the release of chemicals and we don't get too upset, the watchtower is able to help us abort the stress response and calmly observe our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Sometimes we can stay in this state where the smoke detector is going off and your body is pushing those two hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, and it might take a little while before you're able to move your way up to the prefrontal cortex or the watchtower. So what I learned was that in that moment of I don't knows in the rocking chair, where the thoughts were literally not coming to my brain on how to get myself out of that situation, I was stuck in a fight or flight mentality. And what I chose was flight, right? I got out of that situation. I left the bedroom. I went straight into the bathroom. And it really wasn't until after all of that, while I was sitting still and starting to take deep breaths, that I came to the end of myself and was finally able to get to a place where my watchtower was able to take over and apply reason and logic to what was actually happening. Here's the point. There are very complex things going on inside our brains. So if at times you feel like you're going crazy or like you can't figure out what the next logical thing to do is, well, then that's usually a good indication that your smoke detector is going off. So this week's practical tip is about what you should do when you are stuck in that traumatic state. But before I move on to the tip, I wanted to share some words of wisdom from other moms who've gone ahead of you on this journey. A few weeks ago, I asked a group of moms this question. What is one piece of advice you would give to a mom who is at the beginning stages of this incredibly hard journey? And the answers they gave were so thoughtful, I knew I had to share them in this podcast. So here they are. Find someone to talk to about your emotions and feelings. Pray and trust in a power higher than yourself and keep living your life. Join a support group. It's a game changer knowing there are others that understand what this is like. Don't blame yourself or carry guilt for their actions. You've done your best to try and raise them well. Try to be an ear and a voice for your child. Remember you have a life and a family outside of your child's journey. Love them intensely, but keep a balance. Believing that this journey might be the very thing that saves my child from a worser fate is sometimes the only thing that kept me going. Breathe. It's not your fault. Grieve when you need to. Feel joy when it presents itself. Cry when you need to. Scream when you need to. Laugh when you need to. Allow yourself to honor all of your emotions. 
Find people who understand where you are and build a community within that circle. See a counselor, read a book on boundaries, and be kind to yourself, one day at a time. Those are a few of them, but if you'd like to read the full list, you can check out the show notes for a link to our blog on the Pathways to Hope Network website. Okay, for this week's practical tip, we're answering the question, how do I shift out of the alarm state and get my thoughts up to the watchtower to be able to start to figure out what the next reasonable or logical thing to do is? So in the book, it says to manage emotions, your brain has two options, either top down or bottom up. The top-down method involves strengthening what they call the watchtower. The way you strengthen the watchtower is by monitoring your body sensations. More and more we hear about people who use yoga or meditation as a way to manage their mental health, and the reason for that is because that's a top-down approach that really works. If you find yourself in a panic state where you are feeling so overwhelmed with emotion that it doesn't feel like you can pull yourself out, monitoring your body sensations will help to quiet down the smoke detector. So what does that mean, monitoring your body sensations? For instance, you can begin by taking a deep breath and identifying things you see. So it would sound like, I see the couch. I see the floor. I see the tree outside. I see the dog next door. Then switch to things you hear. I hear the wind. I hear a bird. I hear the TV downstairs. I hear a car driving by with music playing. And then you can touch things around you and identify how things feel. I feel the chair underneath me. I feel my feet on the ground. I feel the pillow under my hand. This simple exercise helps shift you away from the smoke detector and back up to the watchtower where you can begin to apply reason and logic to what's going on. The other way to manage emotion is using the bottom-up method. The bottom-up method is basically where you recalibrate your nervous system by using breath. So you hear people say, calm down, take a few deep breaths. Those may have been words you even spoke to your child when they were younger. That's because it's something that actually works. When you start focusing on breath, you're using a different part of your nervous system. And when you use one part, the other part automatically becomes suppressed. When you breathe deeply, the increase in carbon dioxide that enters your bloodstream actually quiets down your smoke detector. Movement can also help. So going for a walk or doing some simple stretches releases endorphins in your body that actually help you relax. Trauma can be triggered in our bodies at any time, so it's definitely something I think we should continue talking about. It may not be something that you face during this experience. It's completely feasible that you could make your way through this entire situation, and while it may still be a struggle, you may not ever experience those feelings of trauma during this journey. But it's also possible that years from now, your body may hold on to its own memory of these experiences. It may not make sense, but the alarm may go off one day, leaving you feeling panicked while you wonder why you're feeling that way because whatever it is you're experiencing was not that big of a deal. The book The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma is a really insightful book. It does use what I would consider academic language, so it's not necessarily a light read, but it does a great job explaining trauma and providing answers about how our bodies store it. I'll include an Amazon link in the show notes below in case you're interested in learning more about it. 
Okay, friends, well, that wraps it up for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Unyielding. I really hope that you found this information helpful and that it served you in some way today. If you did, could you show some love to this community of mamas by leaving a review and subscribing? You know how lonely this journey can be. And when you leave positive reviews and subscribe, it makes a big difference in helping other struggling moms out there find us. Oh, and don't forget to check out Pathways to Hope Network's website. The link will always be in the show notes below, where you can access an ever-growing library of resources, like a list of local and national resources that may be helpful, a page entirely devoted to frequently asked questions, as well as our blogs that cover a variety of topics. When you visit the page, remember to subscribe so you're added to our monthly newsletter designed to encourage and educate you throughout this process and beyond. You also receive access to our closed Facebook group community, where we break down this podcast even deeper. Just a reminder, our closed group is a small group of parents just like you that understands what it's like to have a child going through the juvenile justice system. Take advantage of this opportunity to be part of a safe space where families can come together to talk about their struggles, help answer questions, and provide judgment-free encouragement. You can also find our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where we post five days a week, posts designed to help keep you fighting. Remember, family is like life. It's a fight for territory, and once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want will automatically take over. Until next week, friends, remember we are stronger together. Thank you.